Hello everyone, this is Steve Baker, known in some quarters as the Pragmatic Constitutionalist, or for our purposes, TPC for short. For those not familiar with me or just recently exposed, we began our efforts of commenting on the news and issues of the day some 11 years ago, primarily on Facebook. Last year, we established our own blog site at thepragmaticconstitutionalist.com. We can also now be found on MeWe, Gab, Parler, pretty much every major podcast platform, and sometimes even on YouTube and Twitter, and that, of course, depends upon the content of our commentary of the day. Our new home base for all things that are written, spoken, as well as our video commentary is at our Locals community, uh, Locals founded by Dave Rubin, and that address is the Pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com the pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com our locals community is a place where we are actually never throttled uh, we're never shadow banned and we're never under any threat of being deplatformed for not conforming to the approved and acceptable narrative of the mainstream media or those big tech oligarchs we know so much about now. I hope you'll check us out there. It's free to subscribe and it also happens to be the home uh, for our own fundraising efforts. For as little as $5 per month, uh, you not only have full access and participation rights to everything we put out there, including exclusive content only for our supporters, but also as a supporter, you can also publish your own content directly to the TPC Locals community. And that's uh, for all of us to enjoy, read, and discuss. Again, the site address is thepragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com. Once again, thepragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com. Okay, uh, this new series is something I'm very excited to finally present. I've had this idea for over a year, but due to all things related to what you know drastically changed our world over the last uh, 14 to 15 months, it's just not something I could ever get to the top of my work pile. Add to that the unfortunate fact that TPC is not yet of the size or either well-funded enough to afford a team of writers and researchers and editors. The work and requirements for putting together this very time-consuming project has basically fallen upon, well, yours truly. Uh, but after much consideration, I've decided to make it a priority project for myself and TPC at large. The series I'm today launching is one in which I'll be offering a reading of many of the letters exchanged between America's founding fathers. I think the importance of this effort should be rather apparent, especially considering the current assault on our nation's founding and history by the progressive left. Also, these letters are not easy to read, given the cumbersome arcane language and spellings of the time in which they were written, not to mention the levels of education and brilliance of these men. These men, they expressed in words and thoughts a manner outside of the capacity for you know concentration and focus of so many in today's meme-addicted, too-long-didn't-read generation. I've always wished I could find such an audio-based resource for these letters and other founding documents, but failing that, I've decided to take up the effort myself. The first series, which will take us many weeks and months to complete, will be the reading of the complete series of letters exchanged between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson over the course of almost 50 years of their lives. 
I'll also endeavor to give some limited context of both the histories and content of each letter so as to help make better sense of each uh, as we move forward. With that long introduction now behind us, here we go. I hope you'll enjoy this series. I hope that you'll stick around for the long haul and that you'll also share it with others. When John Adams and Thomas Jefferson first met in 1775 as delegates of the Continental Congress, Adams was 36 years old and Jefferson only 32. Both were lawyers. In their day, neither had the distractions of growing up with video games and Netflix. As a result, they spent their time reading every book they could get their hands on. They studied all available world histories. They spoke and read multiple languages. The level of their education, intelligence, oratory, and written word dwarfed that of contemporary American leadership. Both were allies in their desire to establish a new country founded upon the principles of limited government and the protection of individual liberties. Their mutual respect and admiration of each other's skills was immediate. Jefferson was struck by Adams' eloquence and powers of persuasion, and Adams considered Jefferson the only person capable of drafting the Declaration of Independence. Shortly after the Declaration was published, Jefferson then returned to Virginia as a member of their own House of Delegates, and Adams remained on the national scene. While Jefferson focused on local politics and Adams on national, they shared mostly common policy views during the Revolutionary War, especially on securing international support, financing of the war effort, and on many other national concerns relating to the establishment of the Union of States. But because of their varying immediate obligations and travels, they exchanged only six letters over a period of seven years this beginning in 1777, and this was up and until their diplomatic efforts later merged in Europe some years later. These first six letters concerned themselves with the financing of the war and keeping the moderates, the political moderates, at bay. Uh, they discussed the morale of the army, the draft, the postal service, fundraising abroad, the value of their money, credit rates, treaties, and the like. Adams often hinted upon and beseeched Jefferson's return to national service. The first four letters were all written between May and December of 1777. The fifth letter from Adams came six months later while he was on assignment in Paris, and the sixth and final of these first letters was not written until over three years after the fifth, and this was written in October of 1781. That sixth letter from Jefferson was intended as a short introduction of fellow Virginian James Mason, written not only to John Adams, but also copied to Benjamin Franklin and John Jay. Mason was commissioned to deliver the letter to those men in Europe himself, but had to later inform Thomas Jefferson, uh, some eight months hence, that due to, and I quote, a series of disappointments, he was unable to make the journey to Europe and deliver these and other letters in his possession from Jefferson. There was no email or instant messaging in their time. Distances were vast, travel was slow and precarious, and there was no assurance that letters would reach their intended readers in a timely manner, if at all. The first letter was written from Thomas Jefferson to John Adams, uh, it was penned in Williamsburg on May 16, 1777, and it begins as follows. Dear Sir, matters in our part of the continent are too much in quiet to send you news from hence. 
Our battalions for the Continental Service were some time ago so far filled as rendered the recommendation of a draft from the militia hardly requisite, and the more so as in this country it ever was the most unpopular and impracticable thing that could be attempted. Our people, even under the monarchical government, had learnt to consider it as the last of all oppressions. I learn from our delegates that the Confederation is again on the carpet. A great and necessary work, but I fear almost desperate. The point of representation is what most alarms me, as I fear the great and small colonies are bitterly determined not to cede. Will you be so good as to recollect the proposition I formerly made you in private and try, if you can, work it into some good to save our union? It was that any proposition might be negatived by the representatives of a majority of the people of America or of a majority of the colonies of America. The former secures the larger and the latter the smaller colonies. I have mentioned it to many here. The good Whigs, I think, will so far cede their opinions for the sake of the Union, and others we care little for. The Journals of Congress, not being printed earlier, gives more uneasiness than I would ever wish to see produced by any act of that body, from whom alone I know our salvation can proceed. In our assembly, even the best affected think it an indignity to free men to be voted away life and fortune in the dark. Our house, having lately written for a manuscript copy of your journals, not meaning to desire communication of anything ordered to be kept secret. I wish the regulation of the post office, adopted by Congress last September, could be put in practice. It was for the writers to travel night and day and to go their several stages three times a week. The speedy and frequent communication of intelligence is really of great consequence. So many falsehoods have been propagated that nothing now is believed unless coming from Congress or camp. Our people merely, for want of intelligence, which they may rely on, are become lethargic and insensible of the state they are in. Had you ever a leisure moment, I should ask a letter from you sometime, directed to the care of Mr. Dick Fredericksburg. But, having nothing to give in return, it would be a tax on your charity as well as your time. The esteem I have for you privately as well as for your public importance, will always render assurances of your health and happiness agreeable. I am, dear sir, your friend and servant, Thomas Jefferson. Adam's response was immediate. He received this letter in Philadelphia ten days after it was written by Jefferson, and he began his response on the exact day of the receipt of that letter on May 26th, 1777. This letter is from Adams to Jefferson. My dear sir, I had this morning the pleasure of your favor of the 16th by the post, and rejoiced to learn that your battalions were so far filled as to render a draft from the militia unnecessary. It is a dangerous measure and only to be adopted in great extremities, even by popular governments. Perhaps, in such governments, drafts will never be made, but in cases when the people themselves see the necessity of them, 
Such drafts are widely different from those made by monarchs to carry on wars, in which the people can see no interest of their own nor any other object in view than the gratification of the avarice, ambition, caprice, envy, revenge, or vanity of a single tyrant. Drafts in Massachusetts, as they have been here managed, have not been very unpopular. For the person drafted are commonly the wealthiest, who then become obliged to give large premiums to their poorer neighbors to take their places. The great work of Confederation drags heavily on, but I don't despair of it. The great and small states must be brought as near together as possible, and I am not without hopes that this may be done to the tolerable satisfaction of both. Your suggestion, sir, that any proposition may be negatived by the representatives of a majority of the people or of a majority of states shall be attended to, and I will endeavor to get it introduced if we cannot succeed in our wishes for a representation and a rule of voting, perfectly equitable, which has no equal in my mind. Nothing gives me more constant anxiety than the delays in publishing the journals. Yet I hope gentlemen will have a little patience with us. We have had a committee constantly attending to this very thing for a long time. But we have too many irons in the fire, you know, for 20 hands, which is nearly the whole number we have had upon an average since last fall. The committee are now busy every day in correcting proof sheets so that I hope we shall soon do better. A committee on the post office, too, have found a thousand difficulties. The post is now very regular from the north and south, although it comes but once a week. It is not easy to get faithful riders to go oftener. The expense is very high, and the profits, so dear is everything, and so little correspondence is carried on, except in franked letters, will not support the office. Mr. Hazard is now gone southward in the character of surveyor of the post office, and I hope will have as good success as he lately had eastward, where he had put the office into good order. We have no news from camp, but that the general and army are in good spirits, and begin to feel themselves powerful. We are anxiously waiting for the news from abroad, and for my own part, I am apprehensive of some insidious maneuver from Great Britain to deceive us into disunion and then to destroy. We want your industry and abilities here extremely. Financiers, we want more than soldiers. The worst enemy we have now is poverty, real poverty, in the shape of exuberant wealth. Pray, come and help us to raise the value of our money and lower the prices of things. Without this, we cannot carry on the war. With it, we can make it a diversion. No poor mortals were ever more perplexed than we have been with three misfortunes at once, any one of which would have been alone sufficient to have distressed us. A redundancy of the medium of exchange, a diminution of the quantity at market of the luxuries, the conveniences and even the necessaries of life, and an increase of the demand for all these occasioned by two large armies in the country. I shall ever esteem it a happiness to hear of your welfare, my dear sir, and a much greater still to see you once more in Congress. Your country is not yet quite secure enough to excuse your retreat to the delights of domestic life. Yet, for the soul of me, when I attend to my own feelings, I cannot blame you.
I am, sir, your friend and most obedient servant, John Adams. The follow-up to this letter came on August 21st, 1777, from Jefferson to Adams. Dear Sir, Your favor of May 26 came safely to hand. I wish it were in my power to suggest any remedy for the evil you complain of. Though, did any occur, I should propose to you with great diffidence after knowing you had thought on the subject yourself. There is indeed a fact which may not have come to your knowledge, out of which perhaps some little good may be drawn. The borrowing money in Europe or obtaining credit there for necessaries has already probably been essayed, and it is supposed with some degree of success. But I expect your applications have as yet been only to France, Holland, or some other states as are of principal note. There is, however, a smaller power, well disposed to our cause, and as I am informed, possessed of abilities to assist us in this way. I speak of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. The little states of Italy, you know, have had long peace and show no disposition to interrupt that peace shortly. The Grand Duke, being somewhat avaricious in his nature, has availed himself of the opportunity of collecting and hoarding that money he has been able to gather. I am informed from good authority, an officer, Charles Bellini, who was concerned in the business of his treasury that about three years ago he had ten millions of crowns lying dead in his coffers. Of this it is thought possible as much might be borrowed as would amount to a million of pounds lawful money. At any rate, the attempt might be worth making. Perhaps an application from Dr. Franklin, who has met acquaintance in that court, might be sufficient. Or, as it might be prudent to sound well before the application, in order to prevent the discredit of a rebuff, perhaps Congress would think it worthwhile to send a special agent there to negotiate the matter. I think we have a gentleman here, Philip Mazie, who would do it with dexterity and fidelity. He is a native of that duchy, well-connected there, conversant in courts, and of great understanding and equal zeal in our cause. He came over not long since to introduce the cultivation of vines, olives, etc. among us. Should you think the matter worth a further thought, either of the Colonel Lees, to whom he is known, can acquaint you more fully of his character. If the money can be obtained in specie, it might be applied to reduce the quantity of circulating paper, and in such a way as to help the credit of that which will remain in circulation. If credit alone can be obtained for the manufacturers of the country, it will help us to clothe our armies or to increase at market the necessaries our people want. What upon earth can Howe mean by the maneuver he is now practicing? There seems to me no object in this country which can either be of utility or reputation to his cause. I hope it will prove of a piece with all the other follies they have committed. The forming a junction with the northern army up the Hudson's River or the taking possession of Philadelphia might have been a feather in his cap and given them little reputation in Europe. The former as being the design with which they came the latter as being a place of the first reputation abroad in the residence of Congress. Here he may destroy the little hamlet of Williamsburg, 
steal a few slaves, and lose half his army among the fens and marshes of our lower country, or by the heats of our climate. I am, dear sir, with greatest esteem, your friend and servant, Thomas Jefferson. That particular letter from Thomas Jefferson was not responded to directly by John Adams. In fact, Jefferson initiated the next correspondence from Williamsburg on December 17, 1777. Again, from Thomas Jefferson to John Adams. Dear Sir, Congress will receive by this post our appropriation of the Confederation. It passed the House of Delegates on Monday and the Senate on Tuesday last. Though our House of Delegates is almost wholly of those who are truly zealous, yet there have been a few who have endeavored to throw obstructions in our way. Objections to this important instrument came therefore not unexpectedly. The most difficult articles, however, were surmounted by the spirit of the House, determined to secure, if possible, the union of the states. One objection only stuck with them. It was urged that by the ninth article reserving to Congress a power of entering into treaties and alliances that the proviso immediately following that they should not give to foreigners an exemption from such imposts as should be pliable by natives. The Congress would have the whole regulation of our trade and consequently might grant a monopoly of it and it was intimated that such a measure had been in contemplation and might be given away by those states, which have no staple, as the price of commercial privileges to them. Some warm members kindled at this idea, and all seemed to be struck with it. The advocates, however, for the Confederation, insisted that Congress would have no such power by the Confederation— that a power to treat did not include ex v termini, from the force of the expression, a power to pass away everything by treaty which might be the subject of a treaty, and consequently no more gave such power over our commerce than over everything else, that the inference from the proviso was merely an implication and that Congress were by that instrument to derive no powers by implication or construction, but such only, according to Article 2, as were expressly delegated to them. That by the second proviso in the same ninth clause, allowing each legislature to prohibit the exportation of any article to all places, an inference arose in our favor that we might prohibit it to certain places, and consequently to the very place making title to the monopoly that it appeared Congress themselves did not suppose those words gave them so very ample a power over trade, but in a subsequent part they reserve in express terms a right of regulating our trade with the Indians. This reasoning removed the difficulty and satisfied the House that the instrument would give to Congress no such powers. Yet there remains a great anxiety that an article so important should not be laid down in more expressed terms and so as to exclude all possible doubt, and a fear that at some future day such a power should be assumed. As I am myself of opinion 
The instrument gives no such powers. I naturally conclude Congress had them not in contemplation, and consequently that they would have no objections to pass an explanatory vote declaring that the Confederation will give them no such powers. If the confirming in their affections an assembly which have ever witnessed the highest respect for Congress would be an object with them, I know nothing which would produce that effect more powerfully than such vote passed before the final ratification of the instrument. Knowing your candor, I have taken the liberty of mentioning this subject to you, that if you should think it worthy your attention, you may favor it with the assistance of your abilities. I greatly fear your requisition of money by quarterly payments will be impracticable here. Our counties are so large that an annual collection is as much as we ever attempted to complete. Our people, too, are quite unaccustomed to be called on oftener than once a year. We are proceeding to make good our numbers in the field by a draft. I am, dear sir, with every sentiment of esteem, your friend and servant, Thomas Jefferson. That letter was penned from Jefferson in Williamsburg on December 17, 1777. There was no reply from John Adams until he was in Paris on June 29, 1778. Here is the reply. My dear sir, Mr. Mazai called on me last evening to let me know that he was this morning at three to set off on his journey for Italy. He desired me to write you that he was communicated to me the nature of his errand, but that his papers being lost, he waits for a commission and instructions from you, that being limited to 5%, and more than that being given by the powers of Europe, and indeed having been offered by other states and even by the ministers of Congress. He has little hopes of succeeding at so low an interest." That he shall, however, endeavor to prepare the way in Italy for borrowing, and hopes to be useful to Virginia and the United States. I know nothing of this gentleman but what I have learned of him here. His great affection for you, Mr. Wythe, Mr. Mason, and other choice spirits in Virginia recommended him to me. I know not in what light he stands in your part, but here, as far as I have had opportunity to see and hear, he has been useful to us. He kept good company, and a good deal of it. He talks a great deal, and was a zealous defender of our affairs. His variety of languages and his knowledge of American affairs gave him advantages which he did not neglect. What his success will be in borrowing money, I know not. We are impatient to learn whether Virginia and the other states have adopted the plan of finances recommended by Congress on the 18th of March. I think we shall do no great things at borrowing unless the system or some other calculated to bring things to some certain and steady standard succeeds. Before this reaches you, you will have learned the circumstances of the insurrections of England which discover so deep and so general a discontent and distress that no wonder the nation stands gazing at one another in astonishment and horror. To what extremities their confusions will proceed, no man can tell. They seem unable to unite in any principle and to have no confidence in one another. This it is when truth and virtue are lost. 
These, surely, are not the people who ought to have absolute authority over us. In all cases whatsoever, this is not the nation which is to bring us to unconditional submission. The loss of Charleston has given a rude shock to our feelings. I am distressed for our worthy friends in that quarter. But the possession of that town must weaken and perplex the enemy more than us. By this time, you know more than I do of the destination and the operations of French and Spanish armaments. May they have success and give us ease and liberty if the English will not give us peace. I have the honor to be with an affectionate respect, sir, your friend, and servant. The final letter in this series was written by Jefferson to not just John Adams, but also to Benjamin Franklin and also John Jay. It was penned from Virginia on October 5th, 1781, over three years after that last correspondence from Adams to Jefferson. And Jefferson writes, Dear Sir, the bearer hereof, Colonel James Monroe, who served some time as an officer in the American army and as such distinguished himself in the affair of Princetown, as well as on other occasions, having resumed his studies, comes to Europe to complete them. Being a citizen of this state of abilities, merit, and fortune, and my particular friend, I take the liberty of making him known to you that should any circumstances render your patronage and protection as necessary as they would be always agreeable to him, you may be assured they are bestowed in one fully worthy of them. He will be able to give you a particular detail of American affairs and especially of the prospect we have through the aid of our father of France of making captives of Cornwallis and his army, of the recovery of Georgia and South Carolina, and the possibility that Charlestown itself will be opened to us. I have the honor to be with the most profound respect and esteem, Your Excellency's most obedient and most humble servant, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>